I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hi, welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so delighted to be joined today by Diane Cook. She's the author of the new novel, The New Wilderness, and the story connect collection, Man Versus Nature, which was a finalist for the Guardian First Book Award, the Believer Book Award, and the LA Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction. Her writing has appeared in Harper's, Tin House, Granta, and more, and her stories have been included in the anthology's Best American Short Stories and the O. Henry Prize Stories. She's a former producer for the radio program This American Life, you might have heard of it, <laughs> and was the recipient of a 2016 fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. She lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Diane. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. With <laughs> I, you. I'm excited to quote unquote see you. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I didn't include in your bio is that you, you and your book, The New Wilderness, have been long listed for a uh, Booker Prize. Yes. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited and totally shocked. Um, and delighted. Good. It's been fun. As you, as you should be. <laughs> um, this book blew my mind. And Thank in you. many ways, I, I want to talk first about the author's note at the end of the book. Okay, because yeah. you have written this climate change, eco-fiction, dystopian, whatever you want to call it, fantasy-ish thing that is based in so many different facts and you must have researched so much to to create this work of fiction mm -hmm. can you can you tell me about that yeah um i did research a lot until i didn't research anything <laughs> so i researched just like well i think i have a lot of just basic knowledge about spending time in wilderness areas. I mean, as far as like regulations go and who used to be there. 
And so the author's note at the end is kind of acknowledging that research and who used to live in these places that I spent time in while I wrote and imagined these new characters, these mm-hmm. future characters spending time in this place in, you know, living in a way that's not super dissimilar. Right. And it's, it's, it's so hard not to think of the popular culture references when reading this book, because I think in modern culture, so many of us know most of the stuff we know about survival skills from TV, mm-hmm. uh, or I do. And it was hard not to think about Survivor when reading about these new characters in, the wilder- in this new wilderness. Um, mm-hmm. And and about how group dynamics work and who gets to be in charge, who is the alpha, who is the beta. Um, tell me about writing characters who who fit into that scheme. Well, no one's brought up Survivor to me. But Alliances I watch it. <laughs> I watch it. We it's like the one show my husband and I watch religiously together. Um, it's super problematic show in lots of ways, but yes. we love it. And and I so when I was writing this book, I thought, are people just gonna th- like yell survivor at me and run away? <laughs> I'm and the like, first one who did. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's like it is so much of it is about group dynamics and power dynamics and in the book too I think you just can't get away from that when you have a group of strangers together um who like come together and have to make a community out of nothing like they don't have anything that connects them except like a love of one thing on Survivor it's the show Survivor (laughs) and getting money (laughs) (laughs) yeah In this book, it's like, oh, need to flee, a need to get away, a need for another option because what they have in their life isn't working. I mean, which is why so many people leave any situation that they're in. Um, So yeah, like creating the characters was like kind of letting them loose in their (laughs) place and like seeing what happens, you know, like, and trying to modulate, you know, trying to make sure a you know one character isn't too like doesn't go- tip over into like a melodramatic like yeah. bad guy villain and that one person isn't like clearly the hero i wanted everyone to kind of be complicated and have their own and make their own mistakes you certainly know? because that seemed more human and that was that was the fun part i think of like trying to figure out who they were um, was getting to see them all have a moment of weakness. Yeah. Um, that's m- the most fun part, I think. A- and different characters. strengths, too. Um, yeah. tell, me, tell me a little bit more about um, the survival skills you learned about, such as like foraging, what, what you can eat, what you can drink. Um, what characters were going to have to do to survive in the wilderness? Um, well, I had some books, like books called like How to Survive in the Wild, <laughs> you know, yep. which is a pretty helpful, helpful, helpful text to have. <laughs> um, and then sometimes, so, and then I read some fiction, like I read uh, 
My Side of the Mountain. Have you ever read that? No. By Jean Craig something or other. It's like a kid's book that I never read as a kid because it's like has a boy. <laughs> a boy is the main character and I guess <laughs> no one thought I would be interested. Um, but it's like super helpful in just imagining how one person, a normal person would spend, like get along day to day just finding whatever they eat, like a non-expert, like someone who's not used to doing it. Um, but sometimes I would just come up, I would imagine things and then I'd realize, well, that probably wouldn't happen. They probably wouldn't find that thing where I have them or it's not the right season for that. If I had a sense of season mm -hmm. or, you know, I've got a water problem in this book. <laughs> where are they going to get all this water from? <laughs> and, and then, you know, I just took the reins of fiction mm -hmm. and I, or like whatever the magic of fiction is. And I mm -hmm. said, fiction, let me do whatever I want. And so then I just did whatever I wanted. So they have acorn cakes at some point. Yes. And I just said, cause they do. <laughs> <laughs> Good and, <for> I did, <laughs> and I didn't totally worry about whether it was authentic because I'm writing fiction and I felt like as much as it's, I'm trying to make it a real experience, seeming a, a real seeming experience, it's not. And I also right. wanted to have fun with that part of it. Absolutely. And, and they, so you described this group of originally 20 people who all of them wrote their why I'm leaving New York letters. Totally. <laughs> In your book, The City, as you call it, um, and it could be anywhere, I'm sure, but um, it is overcrowded let's, and I mean, dangerous. Let's face it. Let's face it. <laughs> Um, I'm talking to you um, in the middle of a pandemic when it does feel mm -hmm. like uh, it would be nice to uh, get out of New York for a little while. They sign a contract to, to get the privilege to live in this wild state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they join an experiment, basically, to have the... Uh, the privilege of getting to stay there um, when no one else can. And it's also like they do it at a point, I think in the history, the history or the mm -hmm. moment of time that I'm writing it, they do it at a point where no one would really want to do what they're doing yet. Um, I wanted them to seem like kind of this pioneer. Yeah. Uh, that who has a sense of what's coming like whether they realize it or not and they are the first they're like the canaries they're the first to kind of absent and then as the book goes on now that changes yeah um and and one of the things they commit to is to be a nomadic tribe which is complicated <laughs> and so you go you have them go through so many different landscapes so many different experiences um how did that come to you how tell me about nomadic tribes and writing about them well i 
I think the, the first thought that came to me about this book, and I think this happens to lots of people, like I came up with this premise and the premise kind of changed and crumbled away as time went on and as I wrote. Um, and then it became more about like what was left after that premise. So the premise originally was that like, because of land deregulation and the future and overpopulation and climate change and like just the decimation of whatever we think of as normal life now, uh, all the land is being used except for this one large swath of wilderness area. And it's a wilderness area. So in wilderness areas, like you're not allowed to build houses or grow crops or, you know, if you try and squat there, people will find you and kick you out. I mean, it's just not, you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. Right. Um, and so that's kind of when I realized that, well, if people lived in this place for, for whatever reason, and the, the reason changed throughout the drafting of the book, mm. if people lived here for whatever reason, they'd have to wander. Like they would just have to move from place to place to place. And then I thought, well, there, then that's it. Because in a future world that is totally civilized and that's what has defined it and what has ultimately like brought it to its knees. Like these people have to be something more primitive or prehistoric even like they have to be, they have to interact with nature in the very first ways that humans interacted with nature. Um, because that's the only way to kind of start the clock again and see if humans have always been destined to ruin everything <laughs> or, <laughs> um, or if there's some other way to be. And of course, you know, as the, that's like the, the generalized idea of the experiment that, you know, isn't what the book is about at all. But, um, but it was, that was kind of the, the driving force of it. Um, I think I, I needed them to be of the land in a very particular way uh, in order for just the premise and just where I wanted them to go for that to work. Yeah, there's, there's, there's like this almost literal, de de I've never said this word out loud, devolution. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I really was, I was really interested in how people devolve, I guess, would be the word. Um, and I've always been really interested in that. Like, I think uh, the stories in my collection deal with that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily, like, as obviously as they do in the novel, but I come up with a lot of ideas by watching animals. Um mm -hmm an animal behavior and then imagining, well, like humans are animals and we're just on this different spectrum. So why do we think that this thing that happens to an animal is all that different from this thing that happens to a person? Maybe we actually process these things very similarly. And so I like squash humans and animals together. And the novel is like another version of that thought experiment. And, and I think, not to give anything away, most notably to me uh, in the way that these humans begin to act like animals are, are, are the sex scenes. Oh. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're hunting and gathering and tracking and uh-huh. walking, but they're also having sex in front of each other. Yeah. Yeah, it was hard to figure out a way to avoid that. Like, because I think, think of animal groups. And I mean, every high drama nature documentary you've ever seen is about Mm. like a male and a female and who gets who. And it's like an absolute show of power and authority in a group. I mean, usually, I mean, in certain groups. And those are the groups that everybody wants to talk about on nature documentaries because it's the most exciting part of it. Um, So I wanted to play with that. And, and as like a, an example of like how steeped I got into the book and the way the book is and like the logic of the book. I like when people started bringing that up, like once it was more out in the world, you know, like I was starting to give it to friends and stuff and they were like, Whoa, people fuck in front of each other. And I was like, yeah, what? <laughs> Is that I weird? mean, yeah, I, th- there you go. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it, it, it was kind of the only way it could happen because they also just live with each other and they have no walls. Right. So I only regret there's only a couple scenes. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we can imagine more. Um Speaking of the the logic of the novel, tell me about time in the novel. Tell me how time works and how you measure it. Time works. I mean, so time is kind of lost to the characters. No um, phones, no watches. No phones, no watches, no real mark of time except seasons. Um, and... I'd also like imagine that for people who lived in cities their whole life or this one giant megatropolis Mm -hmm. city, I imagine that seasons weren't really a big part of their life either, you know, like, so you have, you end up in this place that's wild and you have to learn it all. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this one character B, she's kind of the main character. She's the mother of this, uh, daughter um and there the book kind of swaps their point of view um and she counts time by this like flower that bloomed that she noticed the day they arrived and the day that they arrived was agnes's or near agnes's birthday and so she has this sense of time that kind of no one else does and mm. i think it's i hoped that it would just kind of signal that she has a tie to civilization that is like a little stronger than everybody else um but yeah so they're trying to figure out time they're i mean the reader's trying to figure out time the characters don't care no they don't care (laughs) who cares they really don't i mean if you didn't have a meeting you wouldn't care either you know like time would just go um but the span of the novel to me is always kind of taken about like um 10 to 13 years maybe Mm -hmm. so when you first meet these two main characters b and agnes agnes is about five or agnes is about eight they arrived when agnes was five Mm -hmm. so they've been there a couple years 
And when the novel ends, I always imagine Agnes was about like 16, mm-hmm. 17. So actually it's like eight, eight years. The novel takes place over eight years and they're there for like 13 years. Totally. Which is, uh, a lot can happen then. Um, mm-hmm. tell me, tell me more about Agnes and B and their relationship and how you chose to center them in the novel. Um, B and Agnes are to me like of, I don't know if they're typical mother and daughter, but they, embody the prickly complicated nature of mothers and daughters and I very much wanted that to be the central relationship of the book because when I set out to write it I wanted to write about mothers and daughters and I was a daughter and I was trying to think about my mom who died uh, like many years ago but I who I still like want to I think when I write, I, part of my project is still to try and figure out how to, how to get things or like how to like reclaim the lost knowledge and the lost information and all the things that a person was when they're gone. Do you know what I mean? Um, so part of what I was trying to do was like, think about mothers and daughters in a way to try and mine that relationship because I really wanted to just kind of excavate my own relationship with my mom, you know, in in the only way I could. Right. Um, So, yeah. So it's really their story together. um, And they love each other a lot. They're devoted to each other, but they don't understand each other, which I feel like is very normal for mothers and daughters. And it's not even that their relationship is bad. Like neither one of them is like a horrible type of what they are. Like B has some problems, but she's not like a terrible mother. And Agnes is her own like wonderful self, I think. But, you know, she's a very particular child. She's not a terrible child. And they just are what they are. And I wanted to see these two people who were constantly like, attracting and repelling each other and like Mm -hmm. constantly thinking the other was doing something that they weren't because I don't know maybe it's like when it's mothers and daughters like you think the bond is so close that you're almost the same person Hmm. but you're not and so all of that like in between area is so hazy and sometimes that haze is so painful that you just don't know what to do with it you know what I mean? Yeah, that that miscommunication more than anything. Like the, you make it so clear in the book that Agnes and B can look at the same thing and see it from completely different lenses, and therefore miss each other when when they're trying to talk about it or do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think especially like it's so heightened, and I think everything in the book is a very heightened example of things that happen like in normal life. Mm -hmm. And so when you have 20 people who live like primitive hunter, nomadic hunter gatherers and that's it, there's nothing else for them to look at, think of, or be distracted by, like 
the relationship and all of its all of its like electricity is just going to get heightened to the nth degree. Um, I mean, you literally have them huddling together for body warmth to sleep together every night. And so that's going (laughs) to, that's going to change dynamics a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me about, did you always intend to write the novel in, in two distinct voices? Because it, it, I, I remember the first time the the narration switched over and it was a really nice shock. Oh, good. Yeah, um, I did. I always knew I wanted... I started out with B. Um, she was just who I was writing from. And I, like, I was writing in... When I was, like, early drafting, I was writing in first person and third person and Mm. I even had this like we chorus at some point and it was just all over the place and once I finally kind of settled in I knew I wanted to write from Agnes's point of view but I uh like couldn't stop writing from B's point of view until I finally like maybe halfway through just like had to stop writing the book entirely and write open a new document Mm call it like experimental point of view Agnes and and then finally I could like let go of something so I always knew that it's what I wanted but I like it took a very long time to be able to get there and once I had her I mean I don't think it's giving anything away but like she takes over the book um and it never goes back so it's kind of broken in a little bit in half um because once I was with her, I just was with her. I think she's she was such a phenomenal character and I enjoyed her so much and really like getting into how someone how someone who was so native to like a native speaker of that place mm-hmm. would grow up, you know? Um, so she was just I just love her, so yeah. I stuck with her. And I I Again, I don't think this gives anything away. You stick with what happens in the wilderness mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though we know that there is this me- mega metropolis, as you called it, um, and that there are other areas of the country, world, where people live or where, where things are happening, um, you're solidly in there. But tell me about creating that world and how much um, you had to think up, even if you didn't share that with the reader. So much. (laughs) So much. Um, So much, it feels like such a waste. It's all gone now. It's all on the floor. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Um, I even had a section where I was writing, like, uh about them in the city in a way that was like beyond flashback it was like a whole section where they were in the city and that all got cut um because at some point i just realized like the city's a myth like in their minds at some point it's like a story you tell around the campfire and it has to stay that way um even even uh when new information is like comes you know comes ambling along um yeah there were, I mean coming up with the world was really fun but it was you know I think one of the things that when you're writing 
speculative or you're building worlds, you have to really think about what information to include mm -hmm. and what information becomes distracting and what information is essential for like the understanding. And I did that a lot in my stories and it was easier to do because stories are 20 pages long and like <laughs> it's a very small world um, that you're building. And this was obviously much bigger. Um, I can imagine it all in my head. It's the country, you know, it's like one country. Uh, I don't, it's funny, like, uh, some, someone asked me early on, like, I mean, I did wonder, like, what, what's happening in France, you know, like, what's, like, what's the rest of the world like? And I had this thought in my head, like, when the shit hits the fan, like, do you think we're going to be allowed to go to France? You know, like, we're, oh, not, no, Diane. we're not like, we're not going to be global anymore. And then now I feel like, <laughs> uh, that, that got real fast. Um, but anyway, I digress. Uh, I loved coming up with all of these different ideas for the world, even though it's kind of bleak. Um, but I just wanted to think about land use and like mm -hmm. how land gets used and at what point our like freedom of choice when it comes to land will become uh second to the necessity of how to use land you know like i don't know people get land taken away from them all the time um but i think we're not ready for a time when our choice of what to do with land be like we we all lose it completely and i feel like that has to be coming in some way or another um so it's like when you're building a world like i just look at like where we are now and i just imagine as far out as i can imagine if nothing changes where will we be and then that brings us things like new coasts and the heat right. belt and you know, places that are only used are only like important because of the resource that they have there to exploit. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly when I read now about evictions and what, what could start happening, I, I, I think we're, you know, one plot point closer to your novel. Yeah. I mean, lots of, I mean, people have always lost their homes because some highway comes through. Right. And it's like, I don't know. I just, and originally people all lost their home when people like me came. So yep. <laughs> just like, yep. it just, I mean, it's happening. It's always happening. It just, it's when it finally happens to you that you take notice. So in some ways the future group in this book is, the collective everyone you know what i mean it's supposed mm -hmm. to be your kind of stand-in for all of us mm -hmm. um tell me about again just imagining the effects of climate change and which species survive and like what the animal world is like because um, you you know you you're writing a fantasy about people but also how the animals will react mm -hmm. well i like imagined that as everything 
built up and humans encroached more and more into the areas that animals normally inhabited, they would move. Mm -hmm. Originally, like, I'm sure I had a ton more writing somewhere about the wilderness state and what it, you know, what it really was. It was a refuge, basically a wildlife refuge in Mm -hmm. some way, because there weren't any animals anywhere else um, in any great number because there couldn't be like, there was no uh, future there for them. They certainly weren't in the city anymore. Um, So yeah, I just imagined, I mean, I imagined like Western animal flora and fauna for the most part. Um, I wasn't going to like throw any, anything too, (laughs) too wild in there like no elephants were gonna wander around right but, uh, <laughs> um yeah I just imagined like I actually imagined you know a big chunk of some state or m- many states kind of being rewilded or mitigated back to a natural uh state um you know in in uh in exchange for a development somewhere else like environmental mitigation caused this big land mass to become rewilded and that's the wilderness state and whatever animals then populate that area is what you have mm-hmm. so they like they like interact with different creatures but it's nothing too super wild um it's geese and deer and yeah you know the occasional mountain lion wolf rabbits all the good ones yeah all the good ones <laughs> um maybe maybe that's a great place to stop all the good all the good animals um this has been so great um can you yeah, tell me you. if you have some book recommendations for us before we go yes um i have like book recommendations from lots of different worlds. Great. Um, so I thought about like, if I were a, a nature writer or I'm not a nature writer, but I like to write about nature mm-hmm. from a fictional sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a nature writer because I can't write books like fire season by Philip Connors. That's like the l- modern, like, beautiful wonderful example of nature writing that i've come Mm. across lately um it's so good and it does everything that all the all the old guys used to do um it's really good the world without us by alan weissman is have you read that yes uh it's so good and weird and imagines a world without people but like where people used to exist uh it's such a wonderful thought experiment and then um the books that I read recently uh, that I love and want to recommend are A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet, which I thought was so good and so crazy to read right now. Um, and it came out in like May, I think. Uh, and How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang was beautiful. It was like I pre-order a lot of books because I know a lot of writers. So I'm mm-hmm. always like pre-ordering their book to You're support. Um, but I don't know. I didn't know her. And I, so I, uh, 
she was like one of the few that was one of the few books that I pre-ordered without really having a sense because I just thought it sounded so amazing and it is so amazing and then Temporary by Hillary Lichter and I'm totally biased I know Hillary we're good friends from our MFA days um but that book is so good it's like to me it's like the book of the year the book of uh, the <laughs> oh sorry i was going to i was going to i had the name of the blood generation and then i forgot uh, <laughs> millennials Let's the see. millennials <laughs> yeah i guess it's the millennials <laughs> the book of the millennials the book of the millennials <laughs> um no that's terrible and it would it's not normal people either <laughs> <laughs> very different um gig economy that's what i was trying to say oh okay <laughs> anyhow yes this was a pleasure thank you so much thank you so much i'm so glad we got to talk about the book me too thank you for listening to the maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts